Hello and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. I am Dr. Neil Buttery, food historian and chef. It's time for another postbag episode, the third one now, where I answer your questions, read out your comments and queries. The podcast is going to be disappearing for a little bit, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the things I'm going to be doing between seasons, things to look out for. But there's loads to get through, so I'm not going to be messing about. Uh, except to say, I mention a lot of links and reference old episodes and blog posts in this episode. But don't worry about taking notes if you want to check any of them out, because as usual, everything is captured in the show notes. Okay, here we go. Alright, so people have asked me some questions about previous episodes. Let's have a look. Got a question sparked off here from the episode Tudor Cuisine with Brigitte Webster from Alexander Graviner via Threads. And he said... When did British meat stop being boiled and start being roasted? A Sunday boil doesn't sound so appealing. Okay, good question. It's funny that boiled meat is considered much more primitive than roasting by us today. I suppose it's because roasted is the pinnacle of cooking meat, really. But um, we need to get the order of discoveries here in the right order. So roasting is definitely older than boiling. There's plenty of archaeology and anthropology to back this up. Carcasses were originally thrown straight onto the fire, skin stroke hair side down, before being moved onto wooden spits and being lent over fires. This all requires, well, plenty of skill, but very little paraphernalia. Boiling, however, requires pots that have to be fired, although presumably pots were made and then dried and they found out later that heat could make them stronger. By they, I mean early man. The reason I know all this is because Mark Meltonville touched on this topic when he spoke at this year's Food and Drink Symposium in York. Mark Meltonville, of course, has been a guest twice on this season. So let's have a look at boiling meat. It's often cited as one of those terrible things that Brits eat. Well, those of us who eat meat and fish, well, we all eat boiled meat and fish because it actually means poached. Very gently, often with herbs or in stock, or with a mixture of wine, vinegar and herbs, as in the case of a corbouillon. We all appreciate poached meat and fish as something delicious and delicate, and that's what people were eating. Also, not all meats are fit for roasting. Killing and eating animals that were years old, maybe had been working animals for years, well, they needed long simmering to make them tender. Roasting was not the way to eat them. So boiling, and I mean poaching when I say boiling, is another tool in the cook's arsenal. And there are loads of great boiled meat and boiled fish recipes in the book English Food by Jane Grigson. I've cooked them all and blogged them all, of course, in the past. I've left a link to a few of those in the show notes. The two that really leap out at me, though, thinking about it, are the boiled turkey and the boiled mutton, served with caper sauce. Very nice. And boiled mutton was much beloved of Queen Victoria. So, you know, it wasn't looked down upon, it wasn't tough and horrible, it was poached and delicious. So hopefully a Sunday boil does sound a little bit more appealing to you, Alexander. All right, so now here's a question harking back to tinned foods with Lindsay Middleton. Hazel DM'd me on Instagram with this question. Regarding the tinned foods episode... Have you noticed that some ingredients are now in tetra packs rather than in tins, such as chickpeas? Yes, I have noticed. Passata also appears in little cartons these days. I'm making some assumptions here. The packaging weighs much less than metal 
takes less energy to make. There are no gaps between them, of course, because they're all perfect oblong shapes, so they tessellate. I looked at the Gusto website, Gausto, Gusto, G-O-U-S-T-O. They're a company that have made that switch. They reckon Tetra Packs are primarily made out of paper. They're lightweight and compact and sturdy enough to keep the ingredients inside airtight and safe. I'm quoting off their website. And they leave more room in the boxes for all of their other tasty ingredients. Well, yeah, whatevs. Now, primarily made out of paper, I would say is the word to pluck out of that sentence. Tetra Packs are notoriously difficult to recycle. The cardboard is covered in layers of plastic and sometimes aluminium or some other metal. So it requires specialist recyclers to get that done. So, you know, I still go for cans. If I'm going to buy something that's been pre-cooked, I go for cans. It seems safer and more simple. It's totally recyclable. Tetra Packs, not so, despite the fact they are primarily made out of paper. It's worth mentioning, by the way, that it is cheaper to cook your own chickpeas from dried, especially if you have a pressure cooker or slow cooker. Don't want to get preachy. We don't all of the time. I certainly don't always have the time. On the Facebook discussion group, Stephanie Rosenbaum Klassen, hope I'm saying that right, Stephanie, who's a frequent Facebook commenter stroke poster, we talked about heating domed ovens in the episode about cake baxters with Aaron Allen. Aaron gave a great description of how they work, not just of how they were used, but the sort of physics behind it all. Stephanie said, The description of fire in a dome oven, while elaborate, would be very familiar to anyone who has worked with contemporary wood fire ovens. I spent time as a cook at Headland Centre for the Arts, which had one of brick oven pioneer Alan Scott's early wood-fired ovens built in. Now, I'd not heard of Alan Scott until, well, as soon as Stephanie sent that post. I had a little look online and I found a great article about him and his oven design, if you want to have a read. But she goes on. Every week we fired the oven on Tuesday morning to get it ready for a Wednesday bread bake. Logs would be lined up like teeth in a zipper along the walls of the oven, then lit from the front so the flames would slowly run from log to log, front to back. Tuesday night was always pizza night. The high temps were perfect for cooking pizzas very quickly while the oven was still very hot and the coals were fresh. And she's posted a video that's on YouTube where you can see the oven in the background and the pizza that she's making. Now, it's a good video because it shows us how to make sure the pizza doesn't stick to the peel. You know, the big long handled paddle that you put the pizzas in and take them out of the oven with. It's something that I've always wondered about, and that's giving it a good blow underneath. I suppose not adding loads and loads of toppings helps with that. But anyway, thank you very much for the information. It's very interesting. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Okay, tripe special that I did with Sam Brilton. Got a couple of comments here. Um, I had a disaster with the tripe, and I asked for some tips. Well, Leoba Mordenville said, You asked where you went wrong with cooking tripe. You cooked tripe. Fair comment, possibly. But Sam Bilton, who of course I collaborated with on that episode, did get some top culinary advice and she forwarded me the email from a chap called Gareth Story, who said, After listening to your second episode on tripe and Neil's disappointment with cooking it, I knew I would have to write in. I am a chef who works in London and France and now live in Portugal. Tripe never leaves my menu. My plan in the future is to open a wine shop that sells only tripe. I'm also in the process of writing a book on the subject. 
He goes on to say, I can fully understand Neil's disappointment and can explain why the tripe was inedible. First, you have to put the tripe in cold water with gross cell and bring it to the boil. Repeat two more times, then use milk or water or stock to braise the tripe until tender. My first experience of cooking tripe and onions ended in it being thrown in the bin. With the help of a friend and the water and the salt, I tried again and it was tender and most of all delicious. I actually have a recipe in a recent book, The British Cookbook by Ben Mervis, a book I submitted recipes for, actually loads of recipes for. I can't believe I didn't look in that book, to be honest, because it's so comprehensive. If you don't know the book, there is a podcast episode about it where I talk to Ben Mervis about how it was created and how he went about uh, making it. So check that out. But I hope that helps. So if anybody does see some tripe around, we've got some important prep there from Gareth. Thank you very much, Gareth. I need to go back to Berry Market and try again, obviously. Now, we're going to be looking at more questions and queries and comments in a moment. I just thought I'd tell you about, well, what's going to happen after this season finishes and when the next one's going to start again. I need to focus on the baking book that I got a contract for. So I need to spend a couple of months really focusing on that. That said, I'm still going to be making content for my £3 monthly subscribers. There's going to be a special extra episode just for you. That's going to be happening in about maybe 10 days after this episode has come out. It's all about brains and how we used to go about cooking and eating them and why we don't anymore, which is a shame if you ask me, because I think they're absolutely delicious and they were a revelation when I was going through cooking historical recipes. And for it, I'm going to return to a format that I've not done in a while now when I'm just chit-chatting with you rather than interviewing a guest. I think the last time an episode cropped up like that was maybe season three. So I'm going to be looking to the history, cooking tips and the BSE crisis. What else do you want? Keep an eye out on social media. If you're already a subscriber and you miss it, don't worry, of course, because there'll be a reminder and link all about it in the next newsletter. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs and become a £3 monthly subscriber, please visit the website, BritishFoodHistory.com and go to the support, the blog and podcast tab. Of course, you'll get all the Easter eggs, special blog posts and now this new bonus episode. There's been bonus episodes before, even a bonus season. So you can go in there, scroll down the Easter eggs and see what's there. If you'd rather, you can just donate a one-off virtual coffee or pint on that same page of the website. But you don't have to part with your cash to support, of course. If you haven't, please leave a review, follow it wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it. Five stars, please, if possible. Oh, and of course, there's going to be some events this September. Ludlow Food Festival, Manchester Central Library and Chelsea History Festival. Information about those are in the show notes. If you're listening to this episode the week it's going out, then this Sunday I'll be at Ludlow Food Festival. I'm also going to be collaborating with the Museum of Royal Worcester. Now, I'm going to be telling you about these things as things develop. The idea is I'm going to help them develop the food history and social history elements of the museum. There's going to be lots of events, some of which will be streamed, what we hope anyway, Very early stages, but I'll keep you abreast of all of that. And that's really about all I can tell you. There are some other things, but it's just too early to talk about right now, and I don't want to jinx anything. So season seven, when will I be back? Well, I don't know is the short answer. I've already started up lining up episodes, and I'm already thinking about the Christmas special. So I suppose I'm aiming for hmm, 
late autumn maybe? We'll see. I need to really get ahead with this book. If I do, it could even be a little bit sooner. Also, if you listen to this the day the podcast has come out, then it's the Guild of Food Writers Award today. Did I win best first book with a dark history of sugar? Well, I don't know. Wish me luck. I'm pretty nervous. A little bit excited. Ugh. Social situations. But I'm very glad just to have been nominated. So thanks to the Guild of Food Writers for narrowing me down to the final three. It's quite a thing for book number one. Hey, here's something that cropped up on uh, my Facebook memories the other day. Um, that is 12 years ago since I started my food business. So that means it's 12 years ago since I left my job in America, moved back. And then I think it was two weeks later, I did my first artisan food stall, which led on to pop-up restaurants, a real restaurant, real restaurant closing down. We'll skip over that bit. But it honed my skills, writing the blog, honed my writing skills, and here we are today. 12 years. A lot can happen in 12 years, it turns out. Before I get back to the comments, questions and queries, though, a big thank you to everyone, to you listeners, for downloading, for listening, for sending questions, for getting the word out there by word of mouth. You must be because I'm doing better with every season. And if you can, whilst I'm between seasons, continue telling people about it on social media. Continue telling your friends. Your stars. Thank you very much. I'm going to stop being nice now. All right, here's a bit of miscellany, I think, because people have let me know of all sorts of things by social media or email that's got nothing to do with the episodes of the podcast, but are just kind of interesting food history. So here we go. Ian Harker posted on the Facebook group, well, a few times with some interesting things that he spotted online and in papers. First up, he told us about Burley's Pudding Tree. He said, anyone fancy recreating the Burley and Wharfdale Great Pudding? It was described in Fred Copley's Upper and Lower Wharfdale, published in 1890. He wrote, there used to be a singular feast in Burley every seven years where the Burley Great Pudding was made. It is said that about 30 stones of flour and an equal quantity of fruit in the shape of plums, etc., were generally consumed in the kneading, and though boiled day and night, the huge pudding was not sufficiently cooked in the inside. Nevertheless, in this state, it was distributed from a platform at the foot of the tree near the Malt Shovel Hotel. Good name for a hotel. And the site was marked by a tree. It brings a tear to your eye, doesn't it, listeners? What an amazing story. I've left a link to the longer article about that in the show notes if you want to know more. Ian also popped a link on the Facebook group about the news of a Georgian replica kitchen created in partnership with the food historian Peter Breers, who's a fantastic food historian. If you don't know about his books, check them out. Food in Yorkshire is particularly good. And it's not just anyone's kitchen either. Only the composer Handel's kitchen... The name of the piece in The Guardian is called Lamb's Ears, Eel Pie and Plenty of Claret. London Museum showcases Handel's love of food. It's a really good article. There's a mention of something that a guest, one of Handel's guests, wrote about him. And they said, His chief foible was a culpable indulgence in the sensual gratifications of the table. Cheers to that, I say. But he posted a third article also from The Guardian, and it was the C. Anne Wilson obituary all the way back in March. The obituary was written by Tom Jane. It's terribly sad. It's really worth a read. She pretty much invented the concept of being a food historian, at least, you know, in the 
professional sense, I mean. We've lost several important people over the last couple of years. The amazing chef at The Carved Angel, the food writer Joyce Molyneux, who was also uh, Laura Mason and Glyn Hughes last year. What do we do about this? I don't really know what the answer is, but any ideas are welcome. Perhaps I should maybe do some biographies of these people on the podcast or the blog. I don't know. What do you think? Let me know, please. Thank you. Also on Facebook, Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, posted some research of hers on the Facebook page, and very interesting it is too. It's about the fact that British fish and chips isn't a Jewish invention. Yes, there's some myth-busting afoot. This is what she says about it. What distinguishes fish in the, in inverted commas, Jews way, is not only dredging flour and frying it in oil, but most importantly, eating it cold and according it pride of place on the Sabbath table. The fried fish in British fish and chips is a different dish. The fish is battered. It may be fried in beef tallow, lard or oil and is served piping hot. It has its own long history and there are regional differences in type of fish, batter, cooking fat and condiments and even the name of the dish varies. Well, look, I mean, I agree. (laughs) I know Glyn Hughes, before he passed away, wrote a book on fish and chips, the history of it. I haven't read it, but I do know that he was definitely prescribing to the, it being the Jews way of cooking. But this is such a tricky one. I think you're right, Barbara, um, because people have been frying things in hot fat for absolutely thousands of years. So the fact that Jewish people would dip fish in flour and fry it and then eat it cold, it does sound erroneous. But the chips bit is French. But anyway, that's a different story. It's a great article. I've left a link to it in the show notes if you want to find out more. By the way, I know not everyone's on the Facebook discussion group, but it does seem to be the best place for discussions and for mooting ideas. So please join and get involved. Don't be shy. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British food history. Okay, Nathaniel DeBell emailed me with a couple of questions. He said, Within your podcast, you have discussed recipes prepared by the Britons as recorded in the earliest surviving cookery books. But what do we know about the foods eaten predating the late Middle Ages? Particularly, are there any existing records or other historical evidence of food recipes or dishes eaten in early periods of British history? Okay. So when it comes to foods predating the late 14th century, because in 1380-ish, we got the form of curry, the first cookbook written in the English language. There's an episode about that with Christopher Monk, season two, link in the show notes. But that book does not contain the first recipes. There are several 13th century recipes. For example, one that I found that was contained in a letter with a mead recipe slotted in there. There's some great turns of phrases in it because the honey is almost boiled and then cooled to the temperature of milk straight from the cow. That's your prompt to put in the yeast, stuff like that. So it's nice to see some medieval recipe swapping going on. If we want to go earlier than, say, 13th century, it gets tricky. So if we want to look at Anglo-Saxons, Romans, prehistory, we need to look at archaeology in the main. There are lots of Anglo-Saxon recipes with respect to medicine and herbals. Not sure if you're counting that. That's up to you. But when it comes to Anglo-Saxons, Emma Kay, another friend of the show, 
wrote a book last year called Fodder and Drinken, which was published by Prospect Books, and she has taken pains to work this stuff out. Food, techniques, and equipment. It's very good, so I suggest you have a look there. It's amazing what we know and what she's worked out. She's even done a bit of experimental archaeology, so well worth a read. If we want to look at the Roman occupation, well, there's no extant recipes, particularly from Britain, but there's lots of information, of course, about what the Romans eat in classical times. To refer back to Mark Meltonville's talk about Stonehenge and prehistory, when he spoke at the Leeds Stroke York Food Symposium this year, he talked about the evidence for roasting meats, but also baking simple cakes made of honey, ground hazelnuts, and ground wheat in a kind of proto-oven. So it's very interesting... And there are glimpses, but that's about it, I suppose. He has a second related question. He says, in every cuisine, the history of food is intrinsically connected with the exchange and adaptation of non-native culture and ingredients. Quite so. That said, can you name any examples of recipes which solely make use of flora and fauna originally native to the British Isles as ingredients? Right, good question. Pop quiz. There are only three indigenous cultivated vegetables. What are they? Well, score yourself some points if you said any of these. Samphire, also known as glasswort, watercress, and sea kale. That last one's pretty obscure. It is possible to buy it. I managed to get some for the Grigson blog from my greengrocer in Charlton, which is sadly closed down now. I've left a link to the post if I ever get a garden stroke allotment again, I'm going to try and grow some. You grow it and force it under cover like rhubarb. It's really nice, really delicate. You treat it like asparagus. So that's your veg. You got three. There are some fruits, but again, the cultivated ones, or most of them, are foreign, except for things like bilberries, blackberries, wild strawberries. There are herbs like sorrel, which you could count as a vegetable. There's watermint, things like jack by the hedge, wild parsnips, alexanders, pig nuts. You're probably saying, hang on, wild parsnip? That's, that's a vegetable, isn't it? Well, no. It's got a tiny little root. There's nothing really to eat there. The parsnips that we eat, the cultivated varieties, have been introduced from other countries. So, yes, we're talking kind of hunter-gatherer kind of foods here. We're not allowed any cultivated cereals. Even wild oats were introduced. But cereals will have been gathered, of course, just not farmed. It's made me wonder, though, what knowledge the first settlers had. And, you know, I mean, there's been so many waves of settlers. The first wave happened 750,000 years ago. <laughs> Britain was part of continental Europe. There was the great Doggerland um, land bridge. It's well before farming. Only when we kind of shook off the most recent ice age did farming appear, about 4,500 years BCE in the Neolithic or New Stone Age. And then there's the animals. All the farmed animals we eat now all come from outside of the country, outside of the continent even. There is plenty of game though. However, common things like rabbits, pheasant, red-legged partridge, brown hare, they're all introduced species. There's lots of fauna that have gone extinct. If you're going back 750,000 years ago, there's some megafauna that we unfortunately hunted to extinction. But anyway, but when it comes to animals that were eat, being eaten then compared to now, well, lots of birds and their eggs, plovers, gulls, puffins, 
the large grouse Capicaeli, which still lives in Scotland in small numbers, and red grouse. Now, here's a thought. What's traditionally served with game, especially grouse? Usually a watercress salad and some kind of tart berry made into a jelly or into a stuffing. So I've gone in a very roundabout way to answer your question here. <laughs> but I think when it comes to a meal that we'd still recognise today, I would go for roast grouse, watercress salad, and a tart berry compote, maybe wimberry, something like that, sweetened with honey, maybe. So I think when it comes to a meal we'd recognise today, that'd be the one. Look, I'm not a huge expert, as you can hear, <laughs> about prehistory and food. So I've had, I've had a prehistory episode on my list, to-do list, for absolutely ages. So I'm going to move it up. Hopefully I can squeeze it into an episode for next season. But thank you very much for that question, Nathaniel. On the Facebook group, Leoba Mordenvale asked a question about pies in America. She said, hello everyone, I'm having some thoughts and musings about pies. Namely, why are meat pies a huge thing in the UK, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, but not North America? She goes on to say, I'm starting to think meat pies didn't become a thing in the US because at least they developed a huge array of iconic regional sandwiches. However, the US definition of a sandwich looked to be quite different, but we call sandwiches here in Australia. In the US, anything that involves a bread product is a sandwich, even if that bread product is an individual bread roll. Therefore, a hot dog is a sandwich, she asks. <laughs> in Australia, a sandwich strictly involves fillings between slices of bread. If it's on a bread roll, we call it a roll or a burger, especially if the filling is hot. Is this true in the UK too? Sandwiches equals bread, bread roll equals roll or burger. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack here, the pie bit and the sandwich bit. Let's start with the pies. Others have replied on the Facebook page already, and I broadly agree with them. My take is that in New Zealand and Australia, there was a cultural bottlenecking. The vast majority of people that were moving there were British, and some were Irish. So there wasn't a huge mix of cultures, a culture of eating pie, went over, stayed and survived very happily. North America, however, it's very different. It's a swirling maelstrom of different cultures right from the beginning. They blended, some fused, and yeah, I suppose there are no British-style pies there, although, come on now, apple pie. It's got to be a descendant of the British one. And there's no puddings either, though if you look at American 19th century cookbooks, they're there, puddings, meat pies that you would think of as British. It's just eventually been either absorbed or displaced over the century, especially with puddings. It's a tricky one with pies, though, because people have been putting things in pastry and baking them for thousands of years, whether it's the terrines from France or the pasties that the miners eat in Mexico. It's just a thing we do. So these kind of things are very difficult to eke apart. What do you count as a pie? Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky one. But anyway, that's what I reckon. A bit of cultural bottlenecking went in in um, New Zealand, Australia and South Africa. Okay, sandwiches then. Well, others have pointed out that there are other cultures who roll or stuff things in bread, which is fair enough. The sandwich is reportedly invented by the Earl of Sandwich. So it could eat his meat in an easy way at the gambling table 
Again, people have been putting bread in between or around things for as long, surely, that there has been bread. So lots of different sandwiches. In evolutionary biology, we'd say that these independently evolved, cropped up everywhere with different breads, different foods, different places, with different fillings and for different reasons. Like wings in the animal kingdom, they've evolved a few times independently, as have eyes. I think, though, that the descendants of the Earl of Sandwich's sandwich is what we find in the West, broadly. But, of course, I'm coming from a very biased British point of view here, so I'm happy to be proved wrong and corrected with this one. So if you've got anything to add about the history of sandwiches, get posted on the Facebook page, send me an email, I could do an update, the next postbag episode, if you like. Now, one particular episode caught your imagination more than any other one and that was the school's meal service with Heather Ellis because of course it was about school dinners. There's always one episode per season which really catches your imagination it seems and this was the one. If you didn't hear the episode it was about the school meal service and the dinners that it was responsible for over the last century or so. So yeah loads of comments and food memories about these. I talked in that episode about how much I love tapioca and sago pudding. I even wrote a blog post about it with a recipe. Check it out if you want. Nicola Jones on Twitter said, Love rice pudding and semolina, but cannot get past the frog spawn look of tapioca. But what she did say was, when I was at school, we had a pudding that was a pastry case, then a thin layer of jam, and finally topped with a thickish layer of pink marshmallow, served with custard, my favourite. Let me ask... A sugar bomb, isn't it? But it sounds absolutely delicious. What was that pudding? Does anybody know? So pastry, jam, and a marshmallow on top, or meringue. It sounds a bit like a Manchester tart, maybe. Anyway, any thoughts on that one? What's this mystery pudding? What's it called? Foodwise woman on Instagram said of Sago or tapioca pudding, no, sorry. (laughs) It's the texture that made me spit it out as a small child swap it at school and promise myself I would never eat it again, even if served at a supper party. Fortunately, that never happened. No, you don't see it crop up at dinner parties, do you? (laughs) Uh, I began to feel that I was the only person who liked Sago or tapioca pudding. Pam Corbin, though, also known as Pam the Jam, she approved. So at least there's some of us who love it. I reckon the kids would love this. It's the bubbles in bubble tea, after all. What about we call it bubble pudding? I think that one actually might work. But then Peter B. Everhart messaged me on Twitter with his recipe. And he does this. He says, I pour unsoaked small pearls directly into boiling water. Cook until fully transparent. Rinse and chill in a bit of simple syrup. Make a pastry cream and lighten it with a cooked meringue. And then he flavours it with pandan leaf. I really need to up my puddings here. Thank you very much, Peter. That's obviously the connoisseur's choice, and I'll certainly be having a go at making it. There was also a lot of love for sponge and custard, something I also wrote a recipe for, if you're a £3 subscriber. If you're not, sorry. Comment from Baker Cake as fast as you can on Instagram. Talked of the shock of the grey lumpy mash. But oh, the square of sponge and chocolate custard made up for it. (laughs) Christopher Monk, aforementioned previous guest. He says, my most significant school dinner memory was going back for at least thirds of bananas and custard in infant school. Bananas and custard, what a great dessert. I think people would be absolutely shocked if they got given a a bowl of 
bananas and custard now, whereas it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So thank you for reminding us all about bananas and custard, Christopher. Ian Harker wrote about school dinners on the Facebook page, and he said, At my school in Leeds in England in the 1980s, we used to sing. This, if I remember, was to the tune of Frere Jacques. I'm not going to sing, though, so don't worry. It was school dinners, school dinners, concrete chips, concrete chips, soggy semolina, soggy semolina, toilet quick, I feel sick, it's too late, I've done it on my plate. He also says at the end there, with sincere apologies to all of the wonderful people who fed us. As a Leeds boy, I'm from Pudsey, which is in Leeds. I remember this rhyme too. Does anybody else remember this rhyme? Maybe from outside of Leeds. Was it a, was it a countrywide thing? Or was it just a very niche Yorkshire thing? I'd completely forgotten about it. It took me right back to primary school in an instant. So thank you very much for that, Ian. Okay, that brings us to the end of the comments, questions and queries. Thank you very much for anybody who sent something in to me. Well, it's time to go. Time to tie up season six. Thank you very much for the various nuggets of information, wisdom, and how much you absolutely hate Sago Pudding. Please keep them coming. You don't have to wait for new episodes and new seasons to send me interesting stuff that might appear in future postbag editions. So please email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a post on social media or send me a DM on social media. Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram and threads as Dr. That's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery or post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. A huge thank you to this season's guests for sparing the time to come on to the podcast. Aaron Allen, Susan Flavin, Jane Stewart, Lindsay Middleton, Brigitte Webster, Mark Meltonville, Kevin Geddes, Heather Ellis and Diane Perkis. But an even more huger thank you to you for listening, downloading and of course for donating and for spreading the word. It really does mean a great deal to me. You're going to be hearing again from me soon. But in the meantime, cheerio. Cheerio.